Hello and welcome to the Steal My Name podcast. I'm your host, Bob Barrow. Now, after posting last week's episode, which big thank you to everyone who checked out uh, episode number two, where I talked about Age of Ultron, I realized I uh, I missed something uh, at the end of the episode. So a little bit of uh, old business before new business. I completely forgot to uh, give my recommendations <laughs> from last episode, which I guess isn't a great sign that only on the second episode am I already fucking up how I want to do this show. So before we go into this week's movie, let's talk about uh, recommendations from last week. So to go along with uh, the book from last week, uh, best movie year ever, I would suggest uh, recommend Peter Bizkind's 1998 book, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Now that book is referenced in best movie year ever, and it covers the era of the director cinema from the late 60s to the mid 70s, featuring that whole group of directors that came into uh, into prominence, uh, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, Brian De Palma, Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, the, the movie brats as it were. Absolutely excellent read, very dense. It's a lot denser than best movie year ever, but a very rewarding read. In terms of film recommendations, because we're talking about comic books, I thought I would toss some lesser known titles out there or underappreciated titles. So my recommendations would be Howard the Duck, hilarious movie. Yes, it is a bad film, but it is so wonderfully bad. And The Punisher, not the Thomas Jane Punisher or the Netflix series. I'm talking about the original Punisher with Dolph Lundgren and Lou Gossett Jr., hilarious, great movie. So definitely check it out. If the original Punisher doesn't work for you, I would say the underappreciated sequel to the Thomas Jane Punisher, Punisher Warzone, is also a great time. Now that the old business is out of the way, let's talk about what we're here to deal with this week, and that is A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, The Dream Child. Yes, I know it's another sequel. I do take some heat in the sequel department from people, but I love sequels. I love the mythology building. I love the idea that there's just more of something that I love. You know, it's one of the things that attracted me to horror in the first place is that, oh, you like this movie. Did you know there's seven of them? That, to me, that's just a deal. It's one of the reasons I love epic fantasy, because the books are so big. I love reading long series. I come back to specific authors, directors over and over again. I just love sequels, so I couldn't uh, I couldn't let this go. This one go is something I wanted to talk about for a long time. On a frame apart, we, we didn't get to the Nightmare on Elm Street series, so I'm excited to talk about this one. But before we can really talk about the fifth part in the series... If you're not overly familiar with A Nightmare on Elm Street, we'll do a little bit of background here real quick just to bring everybody up to speed. So A Nightmare on Elm Street starts 1984 with Wes Craven's original film. At this point in the 80s, the slasher craze is in full swing and some great movies have come out of this. But for the most part, it's put a mask on somebody put a sharp, some kind of sharp implement in their hand and turn them loose in a fraternity, college campus, take your pick. It's, you could almost say cookie cutter. There was a very specific formula at play and some films were doing it better than others. Some films were just like, okay, let's go and see how they kill this group of kids. With A Nightmare on Elm Street, it completely changes how these films could be made in terms of what a slasher film could be. 
And that really comes down to the genius of Wes Craven. You know, the man was working on his P going to be working on his PhD before he abandoned academia to go and become a filmmaker. So starting with last house on the left, the Hills have eyes two incredible films, then moving into kind of a, you could say a middling period in his career. You know, those first films were so brutal, so impactful. Where do you go? You know, he's a smart guy. He wants to do other things. But I believe, as he put it, he couldn't get a parking ticket. They couldn't get arrested. You know, the, he did a Hills Have Eyes sequel, which is fucking hilarious. Even the dog has a flashback in that movie. I cannot recommend it enough for all the wrong, for all the right, wrong reasons. You know, he had done Swamp Thing, Deadly Friend, a couple of okay efforts in there. But then comes A Nightmare on Elm Street and the creation of Freddy Krueger. And this just takes the idea of the slasher villain or even the horror film villain in general and just completely amps it up because it's rooted in an intelligence that you don't often get, not just in horror cinema, but anywhere. It's almost a literary level of intelligence building Freddy from the ground up. You know, it's a well-known story how he took the idea for people dying in their dreams from articles that he read, building Freddy from the, the colors of his sweater. He picked red and green because those are the hardest two colors for the eye to process next to each other. The, the name came from a kid who bullied him. The idea of Freddy's claw, which is so indelible and so famous a symbol, came from his thoughts of, well, what are we afraid of as humans? What was our first fear? And the idea of the claws of an animal and hiding in caves as bears and, you know, cougars and, you know, food chain fuckery tries to reach in and grab you and rend you open. So you have all these incredible ideas at play and it's distilled through the performance of Robert England and... I think it's one of the reasons why the series would have an almost next to impossible time being rebooted because how do you do it without Robert England? So you have this first film that just kind of hits a bit like lightning out of a clear sky. There's really nothing like a nightmare in Elm Street. You now have a villain that is gleefully evil. He's he's talking, he's funny, but he's terrifying. You have a group of likable kids and the film is is a hit. The film establishes New Line Cinema, who would later go on to make Lord of the Rings, as a you know as a new player in town. So very quickly, let's start get this franchise rolling, and that's what it becomes. You can't really just look at a Nightmare on Elm Street as just oh that one film. You look at it as it's a sum of its parts because there's six films in the original run. Wes Craven's New Nightmare being part seven, which is kind of a revisionist postmodern take, kind of the pre-scream, if you will, in terms of taking a film and splitting it open and looking at it. And then Freddy vs. Jason, amazing. Love that movie. I'll talk about it at some point on the show because I have a lot of stories to tell about Freddy vs. Jason. And then the ill-fated remake, which I didn't even bother with, and I know most people didn't either. So... Looking at it at the sum of its parts, you know, from one to five, one of the great things about the franchise and one of the things that makes the sequels work so well and carries forward into the fifth film is this franchise focuses on a sense of continuity 
between the sequels, specifically parts one, three, four, and five. Part two, uh, Freddy's Revenge, which if you're familiar with the franchise, and this isn't being rude to say it, it's been called this the gay one. Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, that, that's a whole episode unto itself. It's an unintentionally excellent, hilariously bad movie in its own right. But the other films, those other four films, they we carry on characters from one to the next. There's a, a mythology that's built from one to the next. And even though each one kind of has its own visual style, they feel like sequels that are happening in the same universe. And that's not something that happens often with horror films, especially long franchises. Some manage to keep a bit of a hold on it. I think, you know, most notably the Friday the 13th franchises or franchise parts two to six actually have a direct through line parts two, three, and four actually take place almost back to back to back with each other, which is funny because then it places it right out of being Friday the 13th and then turns into the 14th and 15th. That doesn't matter. Part four gives us Tommy Jarvis, who we follow through five and six. You know, Halloween has a very convoluted sense of fran- of continuity. The original parts one and two connect. Three is its own wonderful animal. Four and five have a connection through Jamie Lloyd and then a little bit into six, but then it goes off in its own weird direction and then kind of collapse for a reboot. And now we have H2O, which connects to part one and two, and then Resurrection connects to that, and then the remakes hit, and now the new Halloween ignores everything except part one. So that continuity is completely all over the place. Hellraiser one and two feel like direct sequels to each other and established mythology building on that. I love part three, but it it veers away, not just in terms of its mythology, but its visual style. And then it would be completely wrong of me to not mention Phantasm, which I believe if I'm if if my timeline stays as I have it planned now, my episode outline, that's going to be the tenth episode where I delve into the Phantasm franchise because that's that's my number one. That's my my desert island pick for my favorite franchise. So. Other franchises have kind of got it, but A Nightmare on Elm Street has this special blend in its sequels where it managed to, for longer than most series, hold on to its sense of continuity, for the most part kept its mythology grounded, and not just around Freddy, the central villain, but amongst the characters themselves. Because we start with one of the original and probably the best final girl in terms of slasher films with Nancy Thompson in the first one. Then she comes back in the third one and we're introduced to Kirsten in an early role for Patricia Arquette. And the Kirsten character then carries over into part four where we get Alice and she carries us into the fifth one. I know I just dropped an absolute shit ton of information on you. And I hope if you need to rock it back a little bit, Please do. Uh, I will try not to have any more uh, race dance style information dump monologues on you there. But it is important to try to get a sense of how interconnected all of this is and how much better the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise does it. Because talking about a fifth one and a fifth one that's a bit contentious with people, it's 
I'm just, I'm not trying to make an argument for it, even though I guess the whole point of doing an episode of an underloved sequel is to make an argument for it. But fuck it. This is my argument. This is my Elm Street 5 manifesto. And I believe in this film. Hashtag dream child. So we are now in 1989. Freddy is at the absolute height of his popularity. He had each sequel had grossed more than the last one. Part four, you know, the fourth film in the franchise being the highest grossing film so far. That doesn't really happen, especially not in the 80s in terms of horror franchises. Now with, you know, the Marvel sequels going on for so long, Fast and the Furious, all that stuff. Back then, there weren't big franchises really churning sequels at this point, you know. The Star Trek franchise was still going on, but that was hit and miss. You know, James Bond was out there still doing his thing. And, like, obviously horror was pumping out, you know, its own sequels and its own franchises. But Freddy was the top of the heap. You know, he was an indelible place and had an indelible place in pop culture at this point. The sequels were going huge. The Freddy's Nightmare TV show was on. An endless stream of merchandise was out. Freddy put out a fucking record. He had a 900 number. Ronald Reagan quoted A Nightmare on Elm Street in one of his speeches. It was everywhere. It became, it, it became a way people referred to things. Like it, it entered the lexicon of our speech. So at this point... After the success of the fourth one, and Dream Masters is a great film, but it is and has been referred to as kind of the MTV nightmare. It's loud. It's poppy. Freddy's cracking a lot of jokes. It's a great film, but Freddy is not, I would say, he's not scary in that film like he was in the first one and, say, the third film. Because the third one, Dream Warriors, is really, you know, that becomes the benchmark going forward. You have to try to kind of equal that where you balance the fear and the excitement and the frights. Part four kind of went for all excitement and humor more so than the frightening aspects. And great, that worked, but you can't keep doing that or you risk turning Freddy into an object of parody. Comes a bit of a game show host where it's like, okay, kids, let's see what pun I can drum up next while I kill somebody and more of a Crypt Keeper-esque funny character for kids. So by the time the fifth film came about, the mandate from the studio was let's turn, let's take Freddy back to his roots. Let's make him scarier again. Let's make him more maniacal, more evil to prevent, you know, to remind people, I should say not so much prevention, but to remind people where this character came from. You know, it's, it's odd nowadays to think because he's such a, a pop culture hero and figure Freddie was a fucking child molester that got pared down and not really talked about, became a bit more of a child murderer as the franchise went along. But these are the roots of this character. You know, we're, we're laughing, but this is a sick 
person. This is beyond redemption. You know, this isn't just, you know, faceless Jason running around and hacking up people in the woods. This isn't Michael Myers, you know, who's mad at his sister or whatever. This is this is a, a child molester, a murderer of innocence who's taking delight in doing this. So that was the goal with the fifth one was to take it back to its evil roots and make Freddy a, a character to fear again. Would they be successful? Let's find out. We're going to look at the, let's do the, uh, our little plot synopsis first here. Okay. Cause I'll be the first to admit the plots of a, a little muddy. But we'll talk about that here in a second. So according to the internet movie database, the plot for a nightmare on Elm street part five is as follows. The pregnant Alice finds Freddy Krueger striking through the sleeping mind of her unborn, unborn child, hoping to be reborn into the real world. Sure. That, that works. Now, I okay. All cards on the table. The plot for this film is it's muddy. Okay? It's and that is a result of a rushed production schedule. The fourth film was so big, you know, Freddie was really at the height of his popularity. They wanted to hit well, the iron is hot so that they could take advantage of all the good press, all the good love that had been built up for the character. Problem is, by rushing it, they go into production without a completed script. They've got a mandate, they've got lots of great ideas, but, you know, it's the cart before the horse. It's it's a story that crops up hundreds of times, thousands of times over the history of Hollywood. When you rush to re- meet a release date, instead of rushing to meet or make a great film. You know, famously Alien 3 fell into this trap dozens, hundreds, thousands of other films have fallen into the same problem. And that's what happened with part five. So we're left with a a muddy plot. The resurrection of Freddy in each film is is different and it's oddball. Sometimes they don't even deal with it. Nancy kind of definitively killed him in part one, but he comes back again. In part two, he's just kind of there again part three he's just kind of there again and then part four we get into this resurrection how are they going to bring him back at the start of each film so in part four they bring him back they reanimate him with a flaming dog piss yes that is true and it's awesome because why not like who, who gives a shit it's dream logic of course the dog peed fire in the in the car graveyard and resurrected freddy's bones I buy that. Like, I'm in to that logic. So for part five, Freddy resurrects his mother so that she can give birth to him again in the dream. Okay, that that honestly doesn't bother me at all. Because his mother is so tied into his mythology, you know, he's the bastard son of of a hundred maniacs. His mother was a nun who was locked in the mental institution over a holiday, you know, horribly raped a bunch of times, and then has Freddy, and he is the byproduct of all the evil of men, and born out of the, the innocence of a nun. It's actually a really gross, horrible way for him to resurrect himself. So it keeps with this mandate of make him mean, make him more diabolical again. I buy that. And with films like this, that's their biggest, the biggest hurdle that horror films have to have to clear is they have to make you buy in. And that's the, you know, the old, the old chestnut of the suspension of disbelief. 
you know, I think it was, I don't know if it was Joe Dante talking about it or Stan Winston talking about it, but it was in reference to the fact that horror films have to work harder than any other genre of film because they have to make you care about their characters. They have to engage you with great visuals, great storytelling, great music and sound, but they have to use all of those tools, not to just tell an engaging character story, but they have to make you buy and believe into something that you know is not real, whether it's Leatherface chopping people up with chainsaws or a werewolf or a mummy or a Frankenstein or a burned alive or child murderer who'd been burned alive comes back in people's dreams and murders them. That's a pretty big hurdle to have to clear when it comes to telling stories on top of engaging characters and, you know, a through line that makes any kind of a sense. So I like the idea of them using his mother. You have this great opening scene or not really the opening scene, but his resurrection scene is brutal. You know, the, the mental institution set that they create, the asylum set, I guess you would call it, that they create is a wonderful, dark, gross, gothic edge to it. It's something that Stephen Hopkins, the director, brought to it. It it feels unsettling and disgusting, the kind of place that could make Freddy, that could have brought an evil like that forth into the world. And it's also a nice change from the boiler room sets which are fun and spooky, but this kind of just gives it a new flavor, a new feeling, a bit more of an, an old Hollywood kind of a throwback sense to it. The problem with this, this kind of resurrection thing, and it's, it's a problem that follows through and just unfortunately chases the film all the way to the end, is we're not, I, at least for me, and I feel other people, it's one of the reasons it took such a critical beating, is this time you're never really quite sure what Freddy's goal is. You know, the original goal for Freddy was to punish the parents who burned him alive. So it's the parents of Elm Street got together after the courts threw his case out on a technicality, burned him alive in his boiler room. So he comes back in their children's dreams, and picks them off one by one. Makes sense. At the end, at the start of part four, he's killed all of them. So Kirsten passes her powers to bring kids into her dreams on. So Freddy can now use her to get to a new crop of kids. Cool. And that's really his only goal in part four. And the other film is just to kill the kids. Kill as many of them as he can in as many inventive ways as he can while the kids race to save as many of them as they can. Simple. You know, it's there's a lot of, you know, inventive, ingenious stuff that happens along the way, but his his goal and his motivation are very clear. And that's one of the things that you need to keep consistent if you're moving from one sequel to the next. We know what the villain wants. Freddie wants to kill the kids wants to take their souls, and he wants to be really horrible and disgusting while he does it. The kids want to stop him from doing that. Film ensues. Very simple. This time, I'm never really sure why... Like, I get why Freddy goes after the baby. That makes sense. Alice is a great hero, and I'll talk about Alice here in a second. She's overpowered Freddy. He can't use her anymore to draw kids in to her dreams for him to get to. Great. Sets her up with a great sense of power to start the film off. Alice is pregnant. Baby's dream. 
he can use the baby's dreams because the baby can't defend itself that way. That's great. That's actually a really interesting concept. But there's also this idea that he's looking to turn the baby into him. I, I don't know if he was wanting to be reborn into the real world. Like, will his dream powers follow him into the real world? They already explored that in the second movie, and it, it didn't work there either with Freddy coming into the real world. That that strips him of all of his power. Or will the baby be born and Freddy will kind of use it as an avatar? You know, not knowing that Freddy's in his head? It, it's... You see what I mean? It, it gets muddy. And it's unfortunate because there's so much of this film that works. And I talked about Alice before, so let's talk about the major thing that works here. And it's the characters. A Nightmare on Elm Street has always, for the most part, I won't say always, but in its best sequels, it creates kids and characters that you're you're concerned about. You know, in the original film you're concerned about Nancy and her friends. They're just normal kids and you don't want to see them hurt. You know, in part three, these poor kids in the mental institution, you, you feel for them. You feel for their peril and their terror. And the same into part four, part five with Nancy's new group, Nancy, Alice, and her new group of friends, you feel for these kids. At least I do. They're likable. You know, they're, they're archetypes stereotypes even you could say you know there's there's the pretty one there's the no-nonsense black girl there's the the goofy comic book kid with the spiky hair you know dan from the fourth one is carried forward alice's boyfriend who's kind of the hunky jock and then we have the not so virginal anymore you know heroine in alice is our is our final girl one of the reasons i like this sequel as, as especially and part four as well is the character of Alice. I think she's an underappreciated final girl. I think in the franchise, Nancy has a tendency to get all of the credit and rightly so she's an excellent character in one in three. And then obviously with Heather Leichenkamp's performance as herself slash Nancy in new nightmare, she deserves a lot of credit, but it kind of leaves Alice just kind of hanging there. And I always thought that was a bit of a bummer because she's great. She's a strong character, you know, moving from this kind of wayfish reactionary character in the fourth one who only gets stronger as her friends die, which is a horrible position to be in coming into this film. She's no bullshit, no nonsense from minute one. The second she gets a whiff of Freddie floating around She's into it, snapping back. Let's get going here. Let's find out what's happening. How do we stop him? How do we get away from him? Not going to let this stand. And that's very refreshing to see. You know, we don't have to spend half the movie, the character, trying to figure out what's going on. She's immediately rushing into action to try to get, you know, this prop, try to head Freddy off at the pass. And unfortunately, it doesn't work. You know, obviously, if it worked, and she got rid of him in the opening 10 minutes if she just, you know, Avengered Endgamed him and just thanos his head off right at the start. You know, she went for, I went for the head. Hilarious line, by the way. We wouldn't have the film. So she has this new group of friends that, you know, obviously are going to get picked off one by one. 
but they're likable. They each have their own little flaw that they're dealing with and continuing on from the other series or other movies in this franchise, you have the idea of the parents are completely oblivious to their children. Horror films, especially with young people, they have to operate in an, in an adultless world for these kids to be in peril. Otherwise, the adults would intervene. So the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise is, instead of using isolation like kids at camp, kids go hiking, they're somewhere else. How do you separate them from their parents? Here it's suburban indifference. The parents just don't understand their kids, have no real concept of them as people, whereas we know them as as the audience. And here they're likable. So as they start to get picked off, that that bummed me out genuinely as an audience member because I like them. I want them to you want them to survive. You know, you know they have to go. They have to kind of knock them off Agatha Christie style. But the best horror films, you know, you're you're invested in how crazy and how wild the death sequences are. And we'll talk about those here in a second because it's one of the major bonus or selling points of this film. But at the same time, you feel conflicted because you like these characters. You don't want them to die. So you feel kind of this sense of remorse for them. And speaking to that sense of likability and realness with the characters, this whole issue of Alice being pregnant and dealing with a child. Now, it does push it out of, you could say, the the teenagers in peril aspect of the slasher film, because now we're dealing with a a parent, she's going to be a parent herself. But I think that adds, it adds a more legitimate realness to her. And it also allows Alice to grow. She isn't the same character from one to the next. She has new concerns now. She's forced to assume new responsibilities. You know, not just the responsibility she feels for her friends and for her loved ones around her, but a responsibility to deal with this baby. She isn't just fighting for herself and for them. She's fighting for this child who's yet to be born. And it creates a, it creates a wonderful sense of nowhere is safe for her now. Cause it used to be, if the kids were awake, you're safe and it's how long can you stay awake and how can we get them to fall asleep, et cetera, et cetera. But there was still that sense that if you were awake in a Nightmare on Elm Street movie for for a limited time, you're okay. You know, it's like when you can't, when you don't hear the music in Jaws, the characters are okay. And it's that same thing here. If they're awake, they're all right. In this film, Alice's waking world becomes almost as peril as peril filled, or almost as perilous as her dream world, because she's so proactive this time. She doesn't give a fuck talking about this in front of anybody. So she, from minute one, knows as soon as people start to die, she's like, it's Freddy. I know it's him. She doesn't give a shit. Well, you're pregnant. You're now dealing with doctors. You're, you're out in, you're in the real world. You're in the adult world where we're always trying to separate these characters from. So they start to take notice and like they have done in previous sequels, they just start making the situation worse. You have Dan's parents trying to take the baby away from her. You have doctors making calls behind her back. So Alice isn't safe anywhere. So she has all of these crushing real world problems that a young mother has to deal with, a young single mother having to deal with on top of the fact 
that her friends are dying. So let's talk about those deaths because there are some brutal kills. Some of the best kills of the whole franchise are in this film. So to talk about that, I have to, I guess, I don't know, not admit to anything, but let you guys know when I'm talking about Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, I'm referring to the unrated cut of the film. That's the one I've watched. That's the one I've always watched. And that's what I'm reviewing, I guess. It still feels so strange to say that, that I'm reviewing a film. I just like to think that I'm talking about a film, but I guess it is still a review. That's what I'm talking about. It's not easy to get a hold of. So far as I'm aware, there's never been a legitimate DVD release. Uh, there's bootlegs of the unrated. I'm lucky enough that my VHS is the unrated version. And it's one of those films that, yes, you can watch the unrated or the rated R version that most people have seen. It's just not as good of a film. And you could say, well, if you don't, you know, what difference does it really make? When you're dealing with horror, especially, and films that are kind of like moving between set pieces, and that's what slasher films really are. You know, you're moving from one kill set piece to another. You want great characters in between to connect it all, but you're moving from one great setup. It's the joke. You set up the joke and you have the punchline. So many times in horror history, the MPA gets involved and they just gut this stuff. And if you gut the punchline, you kill the joke, just like in a comedy. Can you imagine if the MPA started going after comedies and going, nope, that joke is way too funny. You got to pair it back. Well, all of a sudden the joke doesn't work. So with this unrated cut, because these kills go on for longer, they're more vicious and mean spirited, it goes back and really hits on the mandate that they set out with this film was to make Freddy more mean, more maniacal, and just plain evil again. He's not just going to kill these kids. He's not just going to mess with them a little bit at first and then go in for a quick kill. He's going to hurt them, and he's going to keep hurting them for as long as he can. And that's a bit of a change, especially, especially from the fourth one, where it was more of a, a grandiose kind of carnival atmosphere to the kills. They're great. You know, the, the Roach Motel one springs to mind is probably the best one. You know, they check in, but they don't check out. And, but here these kills are mean and nasty. And unfortunately, they tend to hit at the first half of the film. That's really the path that feels the most cohesive. And it makes sense. If you're working with an unfinished script, you probably had more time to work on the start of it than you did the end. You know, I've, I find that happens with my own work, my own scripts that I've written, even my own stories. You have more of a sense of what's going on at the start. And then as you try to start tying stuff up towards the end, that's when your threads can start to come undone. You realize you haven't set things up properly. You don't have the character's motivations in place for certain things that you need to have happen. So things can start to blow in the wind a little bit as these threads unravel. And that is unfortunately what happens here. But the first half really keeps with this mean-spirited tone, and it revolves around two kills specifically. 
the the first one is the death of Dan on the motorcycle. Now, Dan is Nancy, or fuck, Nancy, I did it again. I'm going to give myself a swear jar. Every time I screw up the name of these, my female heroes here, I have to throw a buck in the jar, and then I will, I will mail it to the actress that plays Alice. <laughs> that would just be odd. You know, Dear Alice from A Nightmare on Elm Street 4 and 5, here's $4 because I fucked your name up too many times on my podcast. Much apologies. You're great. Bob. I'm sure that wouldn't get me any kind of restraining orders or weird looks or anything. So I'll let you guys know how that letter pans out. So Dan is a, you know, one of our two characters coming over from the last film along with Alice. And his motorcycle death is so insane. You know, it's very Tetsuo the Iron Man, H.R. Geiger, as Freddy's fucking with him, he gets on this motorcycle, and the motorcycle starts to consume him. You've got wires digging up under his skin and ripping his skin off, and he just slowly melds into the bike and becomes kind of this, like I said, Giger-esque man on a mission here as his bones are ripped, skin's flesh is torn away, and he becomes this mechanical puppet of Freddy and then into the kill or into his death sequence, but it goes on and it looks painful. And that's the big thing is you can have grandiose, wonderful kill set pieces, but the ones that make it look like it hurts is the, the marionette sequence in part three, when Freddy starts slicing down the kid's arms and legs and then puppeteers him by his tendons. Ugh. It just looks it looks painful in almost a Hellraiser-esque kind of way. And that's what happens here. But it's also playing into his fear. You know, Dan can't get to Alice. And, you know, it's that kind of dream logic that they've used multiple times in the franchise to varying degrees of success. But we've all had that dream where no matter how hard you're trying to get somewhere, you just can't. Something always happens. Your car breaks down. You take a bad turn. The street that you go to turn on all of a sudden becomes somewhere different. So it's this horrible nightmare along with these incredible visuals. You know, KMB effects worked on the film. David Miller came back from the first film to do this. It just looks painful and nasty. And then probably one of the top three kills in the whole franchise with Greta. Now, Greta could have easily been just reduced to the the pretty girl stereotype. You know, she's been raised to be a cover model. And in the 80s, supermodels were superheroes themselves. They were, you know, you, you don't get any bigger than the 80s supermodels, even now. It's it's not what it used to be. So Freddie plays on those fears of her of eating, and that dinner table sequence is so... I, I hate to use the term like Dolly-esque, but it's so surreal, and the way it's shot. It has a very European vibe to the whole thing, where it's awkward close-ups and these horrible laughing faces as Freddie begins to force-feed her food and then as she's erupting from her middle starts to dig in and rip out pieces of herself and the food she's just eating and jam it back into her own mouth to keep feeding her it's it's horrific it's horrendous and it keeps freddy mean and nasty 
with these two kills, it's nastier than we've seen him since the third one. It's undiluted, no bullshit Freddy Krueger. And Robert Englund is just selling it left and right. Now, he sells everything, even in the weaker moments of the series. He sells everything that he does. There's there's no tired performance from him. Even scenes that are ridiculous or outlandish or foolish, he's always in top form. You know, he's one of those actors, like it's like a Tom Hanks. And yes, I'm I'm drawing that comparison where it doesn't matter if the movie is sucking around them, they're still great. And to get to see him going back to the to his roots of mean-spirited, nasty, vicious Freddy is great because that's what you're there to see. And the meaner he is, the harder the characters have to work to overcome him, not just physically, but emotionally deal with what's happening to them. Unfortunately, with the second half, that's when it it tends to lose itself a little bit. You know, Mark's comic book death, I'm sure they had better ideas, but the whole idea of Super Freddy, it, he just kind of loses it. And, and it's unfortunate because there is that little section in there where it becomes comical, haha, ironic, because he literally sucks the kid into a comic book. You know, it reminds me of in Freddy's Dead when they uh, suck the kid into the video game, you know? Well, I forgot about the power glove. But we do get kind of redeemed as an audience with the final confrontation, because that's what we're always building up to, is our hero confronting Freddy in the dream. And how are they going to take him down? You know, in the third one, they all join up together, use their dream power to try and overpower Freddy. But you still have the adults and the outside working to help them. In the fourth one, Alice has gained all of her friend's powers and uses them one by one, but then shows Freddy's face in the mirror. And I'm not sure the logic behind that in the fourth one, to be perfectly honest, because that's assuming that Freddy's never seen his own reflection, which means you're negating the whole Hall of Mirrors scene in the third one. And which I know if, if you're not a huge follower or fan of the Nightmare on Elm Street series, I know a lot of what I'm saying might sound like gibberish. But I hope you're sticking with me at this point. But for the final battle, we have this wonderful kind of M.C. Escher-style nightmare with stairs running around everywhere. Alice can't get to her kid, the avatar of her kid that's projecting in the dream. Freddy's running up one flight of stairs. She's going up another. It, it's pure Escher, and it's, it's a wonderful visual because it's very different, and it, it follows the dream logic. But also during this we're tying directly into the mythology that was established in the third film. The idea of Amanda Kruger, Freddy's mother, and trying to track her down. And we get to see the the insane asylum. We get to see the hundred maniacs. And there's a wonderful scene where Alice knocks Freddy into the pit of the maniacs, and they rip him apart. And afterwards, we see Freddy damaged. We see him hurt. And so far as I'm aware, it's really the first time that we, or the only time, one of the only times in the franchise that we see him damaged in the dream by something he's created, and that damage stick. So it's nice. It feels like we're getting a little more, that he's not impervious now, that he's older and beaten up and a little battle damaged. So we're not just pushing Alice forward and not just carrying this mythology forward, but we're pushing 
Freddy forward a little bit. We're not changing the character, but we're changing what can happen to him. Because in every other film, when they hit him in the dream, knock him down, break his head, rip him open, or he rips his own arms off and does terrible things, he always just snaps right back. You know, I just keep on ticking. But I love that scene this time where his arms all broken and hanging down, his pants are all fucked up. It just, it, it feels... It feels more real. It feels like we're pushing this whole thing forward, that it's not the same thing that we've seen over and over again, because that's what you expect. He's just going to bounce back where this time it's like, oh, no, it's a little different. It also creates a bit of a wounded animal approach to Freddy this time where he's not going to put up with this. You know, he knows he's hurt. And what happens when an animal gets backed into a corner? They become more violent. They become more unpredictable. So that kind of leads into a bit of an odd showdown an odd finale alice rips freddy out of her subconscious and manifests him in the dream which cool i can buy into that and then the kid that she's been feeding he's been feeding the souls to barfs the souls at freddy and those souls suck freddy back into his his mom's tummy okay i know all of that sounds ridiculous I will be the first one to tell you. It, it, it sounds crazy. It sounds completely stupid and what the fuck. But I'm fine with it. it. It Honestly, it doesn't bother me. I buy that in terms of dream logic. Because that's what we're seeing here. That's what's important to remember. Is these films don't have to follow some kind of, of real world sensibilities. Something like, a Leatherface or a Jason or a Michael Myers have to follow. Even something like, it, it brings us more into the world where something like Hellraiser or the Tall Man in Phantasm. And that's what's great about this. So the fact that, you know, this power that Freddy bestowed on this kid, he uses it against him. Could the effects have been better? Sure. But you hire a director in February and then you're expecting him to release the movie in August of that exact same year. I can I can deal with it. I know the pressure they were under. Would it have been nice to live in a world with the ideal film they wanted to make? Sure. But this is what we have, so I like to look at it as what enjoyment can we still get out of it? Because being mad at a film like Dream Child the Dream Child isn't going to change the film that it is. I can be mad about what it isn't, but I'd rather be enjoying and celebrating what it is. So I like that he's been this whole big roundabout and he's just sucked back into his mom, but because it's Nightmare on Elm Street and you never really can stop Freddy, you know, we end with his claw coming out of her stomach and the door is slamming, you know, let me out, let me out. So it's unfortunate that the entire film couldn't live up to its parts, that it couldn't be the sum of everything, that it couldn't maintain its tone all the way through. Because I think if it had, if it had been able to stick to that original goal of the entire film is more mean-spirited, darker, gothic, angrier, more vicious, a proper balancing of Freddy's humor and his horror, I think the sequel would have been received just as well as the others. And I think it, obviously you can't fuck with the first one and the third one, Dream Warriors, is untouchable. Third one's my favorite one of the franchise. But I think this film, it had so much potential and I get 
that's probably why so many people felt so let down by it. I think, though, with hindsight, you know, if you can put those kind of feelings aside, you know, almost, you know, what, 30 years later we're talking about this, you can kind of look back on it with a fresh set of eyes, 31 years later, actually, fresh set of eyes and go, okay, there is still a lot to love here about what the film does give us. But it speaks to the fact that a franchise like this, you can't rush it. There is a lot of imagination and ingenuity that go that went into the best of the Nightmare sequels. I think it's easy to say, well, you don't have to put effort or time into, you know, the Halloweens and the Jasons and stuff. But the best ones in those franchises were still thought out and meticulously planned and meticulously executed. This, though, it's a different level of craziness just because you're dealing with this whole dream world and the level of effects are heightened and this franchise has its own empire strikes back it has part three so what do you do after that you you've created a a near perfect film what do you do and unfortunately because they rushed it because they were working towards their you know just trying to party with a release date instead of trying to party with the best film and there is also that idea of franchise fatigue. Freddie had been going strong for almost six years at this point. He's everywhere. He's, in, he's on TV. He's in the movie theaters. He's on lunchboxes. We didn't have a chance to miss him. And I think that's important. Nowadays, where we're getting sequels so quickly, so fast, the idea of the true event film is kind of lost. It's important for big franchises to even horror franchises. You don't have to be Star Wars or Spider-Man or whatever. Any franchise, you need you need to miss the character a little bit. You know, I remember that as a kid. You know, we are big action franchises as kids, you know, the Batman movies. We didn't get them back to back every year. And when they rushed them, we get Batman and Robin. A hilarious movie, by the way. Uh, I suggest a drinking game. Every time Arnold Schwarzenegger makes a uh, freezing pun or an ice pun, take a drink. You will die. Uh, you will, unless you're Lemmy from Motorhead, you will probably die trying to play that drinking game. But it's the same way that Star Wars took a hit in the last four or five years, trying to release too much content too quickly, and you're rushing things. You're not giving it a chance to to breathe in the audience and take a breath behind the scenes for the filmmakers to give it a, to give them a chance to make the best possible film they can in that moment. And it's unfortunate because the dream child could have been spectacular. It could have been completely different because all the pieces are there. A meaner Freddy, a more mature story concept dealing with pregnancy and abortion, really likable characters but in the end, it just didn't work out. But that doesn't mean it's still not a really enjoyable film. And if you haven't visited this franchise in a while, I cannot recommend it enough. Track down the unrated copy if you can get a hold of it. But it is worthwhile. Excellent final girl and Alice. It's a shame she didn't get to continue on into later sequels. Because I do believe there was more story there for her. More story potential to be mined. And Robert England is always great. 
Like you never, I never get tired of watching him play Freddy and I don't think anyone gets tired of it. Is there life left in the franchise? Wes Craven's new nightmare showed us. Yes, there was, there was Freddy versus Jason definitely showed us that there was because that movie is fucking badass. I don't know. Robert England's still here. I think with the right filmmakers, you know, the right approach, there's still a lot of potential. It's it's an endless universe to play in with A Nightmare on Elm Street because it's a dream and everyone has different nightmares. There's never a, you know, there's there's it's a never-ending well. It won't be like someone will wake up one day and go, well, that's the last possible horrible dream that someone can have. No, it's different for everybody, and especially in the modern age when we're so connected. I think, and we have such a, a shared cultural terror now because we can get so horrified on mass so quickly. I think there's a great potential to to bring it back, but you have to do it with Robert England as long as we have him. Like, come on, I I I'm sure there's reasons, but then I also heard that Wes Craven's estate has recently regained the rights to the Elm Street franchise and is vetting proposals for a new film so whether that's true or just some hearsay who knows but it's exciting i would love to see robert england you know slip on the claw one more time and and take a slash through elm street it would be great the same reason we want freddie or uh, jason back you know we got michael myers back but i want i love this idea of continuing the mythology we talked about this off the hop it's the reason why even if a remake is good, I feel kind of bummed and let down because the story I've been following stops. I'm invested in these characters, whether, you know, to, to varying degrees, depending on the franchise, but to just kind of come in and chop the head off and go, nope, all this energy and effort you put into this is done. We're completely starting over and going with something else now, you know? I love the new Halloween. It was it was a really good, smart, topical film. At the same time, though, I I feel a little bummed out by it because a part of it is saying my story doesn't get to continue. The story that we've been invested in and has kept the franchise going, which allows them to make a new one like this, doesn't count anymore. And that's a bummer. But at the end of the day, these films are still here. You know, we don't get on the big screen further adventures of Alice and her kid, of Jacob, but I'm sure there's comic books, whatever. So, revisit Elm Street 5, an absolutely great watch. You won't be disappointed if you go in and enjoy it for the film that it is, not the film that it isn't. On to Deep Space Nine. Yay, so we're on to episode three, airing January 17th. 1993, which is actually kind of good because this episode will air January 17th, 2020, which is a little crazy. I, that just kind of worked out luckily for me. I had no idea that some of these episode numbers or release dates were going to line up as well as they did, but I'll take it. doesn't bother me at all. So the episode synopsis for this, Ibudan, a criminal Odo has dealt with before, returns to DS9 only to be murdered shortly after, leaving Odo to be the prime suspect. Jake and Nog's troublemaking prompt Keiko to do something helpful for the station's children. At some point, that's pretty much what we're about. This 
episode really begins to lay the groundwork for the interpersonal relationships that will progress for the rest of the series. Because as I've talked about the first episode and episode two, is that's what is one of the main selling points of this series, is these interpersonal relationships between the characters. And the fact that the problems aren't resolved at the end of each episode. These issues are going to continue on and grow and evolve, just like real life relationships grow and evolve over a course of time. So this episode really begins the start of the several different relationships, which I'll try and knock off here as quickly as we can. We have the Jadzia and Julian relationship, the Dax and Julian relationship, which basically (laughs) amounts to Julian chasing her around like a dog. And it's cute at the time, and it's still cute now to watch. It's out of touch. You wouldn't present a relationship like this anymore because Julian is consistently not taking no for an answer, and that's not cool. Obviously not cool. We have the first seeds of the Dax and Cork relationship, which is another Cork is just madly in love with Jadzia the whole time. This is the first time that Jake, Captain Sisko's son, and Nog, the Ferengi boy, will first meet each other in the beginning of their friendship. We also get to see another returning TNG alumni in Keiko O'Brien, Chief O'Brien's wife. And that's one of the great reality kind of grounding things on the show because it's a real marriage that these characters are dealing with and all of the problems and joys that are presented there. Because in the other series, we have characters that are in relationships but we don't have kind of a a nuts and bolts, brass tacks marriage that characters are working through and evolving as the show goes on. And we get a lot of information very quickly here. You know, because of Chief O'Brien's promotion and moving to the station and leaving the Enterprise, Keiko's a botanist. She can't do her job here. She has concerns about raising their daughter in an environment like Deep Space Nine, which is not safe. It's not fun and friendly. There's not children. It's not like living on the flagship of the Federation fleet like they did on Next Generation. And also the real-world impact that happens in a marriage when you do a big move for one person's career. And that's what's nice to see because it's real. You know, you have this space station set in the future, this, you know, whole sci-fi concept, but you have this real-world situation that we can all look at. And even if, you know... Those of us that aren't married don't have to worry about kids. We know those people. We saw it, whether in our own families, our friends' families, you know, our extended families. We've seen this situation. So it creates a wonderful reality to it. And then the, the Odo versus everyone story. Uh, Odo is such an isolated and interesting character. You know, most, I shouldn't say most, all of the Star Trek series have like have the the Spock character, the alien outsider who is endeavoring to understand humans better. You know, we had Spock, we had Data on Next Generation, we have Seven of Nine on Voyager, uh, the, the Paul on Enterprise, I guess. But with Odo, because he's a shapeshifter, because he's he's not just not human. He's not even a solid. He's not us. That's what he, they call. They've come to call non-shapeshifters, non-changelings. But that's for way later. There's no frame of reference for a creature like Odo 
and us and for people to understand him because he can be anything. He can be anyone. He doesn't eat. He doesn't sleep like us. He doesn't reproduce like us. And he's the only one. So he's a perfect outsider. And in this episode, we see how people deal with that. And unfortunately, just like in real life, it's usually met with stupidity, horseshit, fear. As he's investigating this murder that happens on the station and finds himself, unfortunately, it's a frame job, but he finds himself as the prime suspect, how these, the Bajoran people who remember him as not a collaborator, but he was in charge of the station when the Cardassians were there, he's still in charge now. And you get this great sense of this traumatized people Smart, sensible, warm people, but there's been so much trauma and so much terror in their past that they start reacting violently towards him because they're just so broken and they don't have a, a, a normalized sense of how to proceed with day-to-day problems like this because they've been so, so shaken for so long. We also get the introduction of Rom, Nog's dad. His character is going to change dramatically over the next season or two from this kind of just mean spirited shitty Frangie that he is right now into kind of the, the big hearted lovable oaf that we know him as the rest of the series. Now there is some silly shit that happens with this, with this episode. And it's a bit of a problem that plagues the first couple of seasons of deep space nine. I don't want to say it's a holdover from next generation, but it is some, some kind of classic Trek silliness a little bit. You know, we have the, the, the bugs that the kids release that make people change color, the stupid holographic bubble puzzle at the start that looks a little silly in the hollow suites, the Scooby-Doo ending where Odo catches the guy and literally rips a mask off of his head and aha, you know, the guy making a clone of himself to kill the clone to frame Odo. The doctor makes another clone and it just wakes up and everything's fine and we never deal with it again. It's 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 a convoluted episode. It's you know, it it's half of what makes Deep Space 9 great and half of the problems that bog down the first two seasons of Deep Space 9. So, I'm glad that they didn't give this to us as the intended second episode. It's an obvious second episode though because there's so much character development in it. But I'm glad they went with more of a hard-edged approach and flipped these episodes around. So, still a good episode, but you're going to start to see some of the... This one really pushes some of the silly shit that we have to deal with in the first two seasons. So, to finish this up, let's talk about our book. So, for the book this week, I read Guy Gavriel Kay's 1984 novel, The Summer Tree which is an epic fantasy, or I guess just standard fantasy uh, book in the, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Fionnavar, Fionnavar, F-I-O-N-A-V-A-R. I'm just going to say Fionnavar, or Fionnavar, tapestry, first of three books. It's very token-esque fantasy, Tolkien-esque fantasy, which makes perfect sense since Guy Gavriel Kay was hired by Christopher Tolkien to help him edit and assemble the Silmarillion. So this book reads like you're reading Tolkien. Very overly dramatic descriptions, wonderfully rich language, 
characters having very dramatic speeches referring to battles and far-off places and things we never heard of, but it creates a sense of a very grandiose, epic, old-school fantasy world. There's nothing modern about this book. There's nothing revisionist. It's There's new concepts to a point that they deal with, but it's very traditional. I guess they call them portal fantasies, kind of like Chronicles of Narnia, where people from our world are drawn into this new world. I won't try and explain the plot too much because it's way too complicated, um, like this kind of fantasy can tend to be. So the Reader's Digest version is five people from Toronto, huh, that's fun, are transported to the world of Fianavar by a wizard. And as luck would have it, it's on the few days before their big bad guy uh, breaks free of his prison and calamity ensues. Keeping with kind of this overly dramatic, super serious tone, the characters slip into this world and kind of forget their own world way too quickly. They're, it, it's very romantic in the way that they're sucked in and right away they're going on adventures and befriending royalty and gaining magical abilities. And they're all just kind of cool with it. You know, they're, they just, okay, this is, this is us now. We, we all are, we were meant to be here. Now this, it might pay off later and explain why they feel so connected to this place. I feel like in a more modern fantasy novel, we'd be dealing with that a little more off the hop. But here it's just, no, you're, you're not going to get that from this kind of book. It's, it's more about this overall sense of, of grandiose world building and language that you're, that you're kind of relishing with this book. It's a heady read. It's heavy. You feel a little tired. I didn't immediately rush into the second book. I've, I've read a, another book and started another one since then because I just needed a bit of a break from the language. I don't know if this is, was an influence, but as a Wheel of Time fan, it's hard not to notice the influence that this book might have had on Wheel of Time because it came out six years before Wheel. So I'll just drop a couple of reasons, some evidence for my case. They refer to their the universe as a tapestry in this book, kind of like the pattern in Wheel of Time. Their god is called the weaver of the tapestry, kind of like the creator in Wheel of Time. The loom, in quotes, weaves the threads that are individual people's lives, kind of like the creator using the Wheel of Time to weave the pattern of the ages in Wheel of Time. You have the Children of the Light. Here, they're good elves. Uh, the uh, the Lyos Alfar in Wheel of Time. The Children of the Light are the White Cloaks, bad guys. So just just a name kind of similarity. But it's I I on I I'm sure it's documented somewhere. I wouldn't know. I wasn't. I was familiar with Guy Gavriel K before this, but it's the first book of his that I've read. So I I would be surprised because it was a big work of fantasy in the eighties. So I'd be surprised if. Jordan didn't read it, or at least wasn't aware of it, or somebody at some point said, yo, there's a, there's, there's, there's a few things here you might want to check. We want to fact check with some lawyers, but whatever, it works. It's, it's played, I guess, maybe to a bigger sense in Wheel, because Wheel is a much more modern book. 
you know, it's not portal fantasy. It's more traditional questing epic fantasy. And it moves in a whole other direction with so many other ideas. It's not traditional in the sense like this one where it's elves and dwarves and mages, castles and stuff like that. Wheel went off in its own completely different direction. But I would recommend it if you were a fantasy fan. Check it out. If you prefer your fantasy more modern, more action-packed, this might not be for you. If you're a fan of Lord of the Rings, definitely check it out. Because it's like Lord of the Rings, but with a lot of the fat cut out. Because despite its focus on language and romanticism and all this grandeur, it books along. And it, it is a very rewarding read once you get into it and start to get a handle on the the new the new nomenclature because you have to get a handle in fantasy novels on the new names and especially when you're bouncing around like this and referring to people you've never heard of and haven't met just like in Lord of the Rings when they do that but a very rewarding read so in terms of our recommendations which I will remember to do this week <laughs> we won't have to start episode four with that In terms of books, let's jump to the complete other end of the fantasy spectrum. My recommendation this week is the Mistborn series, specifically the first trilogy, Final Empire, Well of Ascension, and the Hero of Ages. That is revisionist fantasy of the highest order. Brandon Sanderson, who would go on to finish the Wheel of Time series and is a very prolific author in his own right now, did an incredible job. Mistborn is one of my favorite fantasy series. It is, for me, it is right behind Wheel of Time. It is action-packed. It is has an a incredibly unique and fun magic system that's very well developed. The first novel is staged as a heist book, you know, and it revolves around this conceit of what would happen in, a, in an epic fantasy story if the villain won. Okay, this is where we begin. The villain has won. Now what do we do? Absolutely spectacular series. The second trilogy, or I guess it'll be four books when it's finished, the Wax and Wayne part is is good, not as good as the original. I cannot recommend that enough. In terms of movies, because this uh, because Dream Child benefits so much from its unrated version, I thought I'd throw out a couple of other films that work much better in their unrated format. So... Start Leatherface, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. I'm not talking about Leatherface, the more recent reboot to the rebooted sequel thing that happened. That's a convoluted lineup. I'm talking about the original from, I think, 90 or 91. Leatherface, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. Check it out if you can watch the unrated version. There's more gore, plot's a little different, it's a great movie. Young Viggo Mortensen, Ken Foray. It doesn't really continue the continuity. It kind of skips over part three or part two. But we get a, a good expansion of Leatherface and his weirdo family. It's well worth a watch. And I think one of the most famous unrated horror movies ever, Reanimator. Doesn't need much explanation. The R-rated cut is very different film. They put a bunch of stuff back in to compensate for the fact that they took all the gore out. You don't need any of that shit. The unrated reanimator is an absolute blast. Blue case, if you can find it on VHS. If not, I think nowadays all of the DVD or Blu-ray releases are all unrated. So check it out. 
coming next week for episode four. Because I realized the other day that I've been talking about nothing but sequels <laughs> these first three episodes. Like, shit, I should probably talk about a movie that isn't a sequel. So coming next week, Friday, January 24th, I'm going to be discussing Clive Barker's Nightbreed. It's the director's cut, so I'm still keeping with this unrated, R-rated director's cut thing, but that happens. Pretty typical with horror. So I want to thank you guys very much for joining me for episode three. I have successfully changed the name of the social media accounts because apparently I am one of the most dangerous, untrustworthy people on Facebook, and it took three weeks for me to be allowed to change the social media names. So you can now find me on Facebook at Steal My Name Cast. Because podcast is a dirty word, but Steal My Name cast isn't a problem. You can find me on SoundCloud at the Steal My Name podcast. I believe the iTunes name has changed as well, so you can find me on iTunes at Steal My Name podcast. Feel free to reach out uh, through social media. Like, share. If you have a movie you want me to discuss, if you disagree with what I talked about in any of these episodes, let me know. I'd be happy to chat with you about parts of this movie you liked, didn't like, parts of the other movies you liked, didn't like, movies you'd like me to touch on movies you don't want me to touch, books you'd like me to touch on, because I'm always looking for for suggestions. My to-read pile, my side table is just a mess. My bedside table is, is stacked. I think there's eight books on it right now. It's just out of control. But I'm always looking for more. So again, thank you. And until next time, remember to steal someone else's name, because this one is already taken.